This is an ABC podcast. G's and G's and P's and T's and it's another big night for the Little Wireless Program coming up, an update on UK politics, then we're going to give you instructions on how to stage a coup, so I hope you're listening, Scott Morrison, and finally, re-emerging from the shadows, the amazing Australian-born filmmaker John Farrow. But first of all, first of all, it's... Uh, in a week, we'll know whether the new UK Prime Minister is going to be the super wealthy Richie Sunak or the Thatcher-loving Liz Truss. Odds in favour of Truss. Not surprising when you consider she has the ringing endorsement of, uh, of Tony Abbott. Ian is still missing in action, so joining us is another of his oh-God-what-now co-hosts in Ros Taylor. Ross has a background as a freelance print and broadcast journalist. She's worked with the Beeb, the Guardian, and the London School of Economics and Political Science, and she's now a contributing editor at Podmasters, who published both the Oh God, What Now podcast and the other podcast she co-hosts called The Bunker. Ros, welcome. I understand that as well as Tony Abbott, and we'll deal with that later, uh, Liz has the great support of Zelensky. Why? Well, she's always been very supportive of the UK's efforts in Ukraine. She's made sure she's really been competing with Boris Johnson on this front. She goes there as often as possible, sometimes even dresses up in a, in a bearskin hat to look more local. But her aim is to show just how powerful and how tough on Russia she is going to be on the world stage. And that extends to China too, which has caused some, shall we say, tensions with China. She is looked on with a great deal of suspicion by the Russians and the Chinese. Now, Dublin's newspaper of record, the Irish Times, dismissed her as an ineffectual foreign minister who campaigned against Brexit and then cheered it. So is Western Europe keen on her? Well, the Baltics are, in other words, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, because they, of course, feel threatened by Russia. So they, she has quite a lot of support there. But for the rest of the EU, especially France and uh, even more so Ireland, she is regarded with a great deal of suspicion. She has no way that we can see of of sorting out the abiding problem with the Northern Ireland Protocol, which of course is a complicated dispute that decides whether and how Northern Ireland can stay in the single market or not. Currently it is. We know that Moscow and Beijing don't like her at all, but she has the ringing endorsement of our former Prime Minister Tony Abbott. Remind us of the circumstances. Yes, she invited him to join the UK Board of Trade. Uh, and that helped to secure Britain a free trade agreement with Australia at the end of last year, which she was very, very proud of. Now, throughout the Brexit process, Liz Truss has been dead keen on the idea of a special relationship, trading relationship between Canada, New Zealand and the UK and Australia. And she has relentlessly pushed for that. She's always giving speeches to Australian-based think tanks. She's clearly got a great interest in Australia. But, of course, this is a very small-scale um, free trade agreement simply because you guys are so very far away from us. It will only apparently lead to a 0.0% increase in GDP in the next 10 years, which is not an awful lot. Roz, I have to make the point that while she gets uh, the, the thumbs up from uh, Tony Abbott, another former Prime Minister and Paul Keating describes her remarks about possible Chinese activity in the Pacific as, and I quote, demented. So I suppose that, that gives us equilibrium or balance. But she will need to establish a relationship with our shiny, bright new Labour Prime Minister. She might find that a bit difficult. She might. She very much wants to join your CPTPP uh, partnership, 
She's very keen on doing that now. She's got a trade deal. But Liz Truss is not a progressive. She has moved steadily to the right for the last 10 years. And I don't see how a Labour prime minister can work with her closely. For example, on things like net zero, she is adamantly opposed even to things like solar panels in fields in Britain. A couple of weeks ago, she said that she didn't want to see them in fields. She wanted to see animals there instead. This is the <laughs> level of debate that we are having in a country that is uh, reached 40 degrees for the first time two weeks ago. The more you talk about her, the more she makes uh, Sunak seem attractive, but he hasn't a hope in that hell now. It doesn't look as though he does. It's hard to know exactly how Conservative members are voting in this election because there are relatively few of them, so you can't poll them very much. But from everything we know, she is pretty much a shoe-in for this job. You make the point that she's swimming against the tide in some ways, as both here and in the U- US more progressive governments have been uh, voted in. And the government with which she would have been more closely aligned has uh, been ousted. You mean the uh, Trump administration? Yes. Yes. Uh, Yes, it has. And she doesn't have great relationships with Joe Biden's administration. Uh, America has never really been her priority at all. And we don't see much evidence of that changing. There's very little likelihood of a free trade deal with the US in any time soon. Ros, what about uh, former Tory MP Matthew Paris? He's uh, no fan of trust. Yes, I understand he was on your programme quite recently uh, explaining what he thought of her. Yeah, he describes her as crackers, and he's not the only one. I've heard other senior Tory and ex-Tory politicians uh, describing her in the same way. She has a strangely robotic manner, which she is really struggling to overcome. For example, when she uh, answers questions, there will be a strange pause between the question and the answer, as if you could almost hear the cogs whirring. Until she joined the leadership contest, she was best known for a very strange speech she gave a few years ago, complaining that Britain wasn't exporting enough cheese to Europe and it was importing too many apples. She does not have the charisma or the ability to connect with the public that you would normally expect of a Tory leader in this position. Ros, is she getting the nod from Boris? I think she's only getting the nod from Boris because Boris knows just how bad things are going to be for her and he still cherishes ambitions of returning to the stage. You might remember that he said hasta la vista when he <laughs> left number 10 and <laughs> earlier this summer. He still thinks that he could make a comeback and indeed if you ask Conservative members, they say they would prefer to keep Boris Johnson even after all that we've gone through. Than yeah, I, I found that quite shocking looking at the, those polls figures. Here he is. He'd he'd win in a a three-horse race, wouldn't he? He would, certainly among um, Conservative members, but the wider public is a different question altogether. And now that she's spent two or three months trying to persuade Conservative members how aligned she is with them and how right-wing she is, she now actually has to reach out to the general public and show that she can solve some of the enormous problems that are facing Britain at the moment. Okay, let's assume she's elected Tory by Tory party members on September 5. As you say, major challenges, one of which will be this wave of strikes. Will she handle these a la Thatcher? It is very hard to say. She does have some room for manoeuvre. Inflation at the moment in Britain is pretty high. It's over 10% now, and that is basically what has led to these strikes. We are seeing already the railways, the underground, the buses going on strike. In September, criminal barristers will join them, postal workers, dock workers. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, stop. Barristers are going on strike? (laughs) That's right. Criminal barristers, not civil barristers. So that essentially means that any criminal trial just can't go ahead. And it's an, it's an unlimited, it starts on 5th of September and there's no, there's no end date. They are going on strike. Are they, are they demanding more guilty verdicts or more findings of innocence? They simply want more money. <laughs> they are they are massively underpaid for the job they do, and they want a twenty five percent increase in their pay. Oh my God! So forty thousand rail workers, one hundred and fifteen thousand Royal Mail workers. The country is falling apart. 
It is, and it's not just them. School teachers and nurses are balloting for strikes this autumn as well. So where Thatcher only had to face down the coal miners in the early 80s, she has to face down something much more akin to what we remember, as those of us who are old enough to remember in the UK, as the winter of discontent or even the general strike. This is enormous because every single profession is affected by the rise in the cost of living. I'm broadcasting from a city which has been uh, troubled by train strikes this very day. And, of course, we are sharing rising energy bills with you, but nothing like the £6,000 per year that we're seeing in London. No, it's a huge projected rise. It's already gone up from around seven, eight hundred a year or so ago to uh, estimated 2,000 and it's going to go up again and again. And so far, Liz Truss has been pretty much entirely silent on how she intends to tackle this. There is a vague bit about help will be coming, but her main selling point for the leadership election has been that she's going to cut taxes. Cutting taxes, as we know, will help people mostly who pay more taxes, and those are people who are better off, not the poorest who are going to struggle to pay these enormous bills. Now, Ros, before, no, I, let I, you, before I let you go, I've got to squeeze this in. To hell with trust. Tell me about trust, the book you're writing on the future of that. Yes, that's right. It's a fascinating time. So it's about political trust, of course, and Liz Truss inevitably has been talking about how much she wants to be trusted. But it's also about how we'll think about trust in the metaverse and in face with the climate emergency. How is that going to change when we're in the metaverse? Do we have to be surrounded by a bubble as Zuckerberg wants us to be? So because he doesn't trust us to virtually trust, uh, touch each other. There are so many fascinating aspects to this and it's uh, really enjoying writing that. Well, I'm going to book you in for a chat about the book and thank you very much for coming on. Ros Taylor, co-host of the Oh God, What Now and the Bunker podcasts, a contributing editor at Podmasters, former editor at The Guardian UK and until recently, editor at the London School of Economics and Politics. Coming up, excellent advice on how to stage a coup. We've just been discussing a world of lies and deceit and deceptions and disruption, but now let's do a segue to a secret world of covert action, smoke and mirrors, subversion, manipulation, secret wars, rigged elections, poisonings, assassinations, heavens above, cyber attacks and a sprinkling of plausible deniability. We're going to talk about all this and more with Rory Cormack, the author of How to Stage a Coup and 10 Other Lessons from the World of Secret Statecraft. Rory Cormack is Professor of International Relations and cop this for a title, Director of the Centre for the Study of Subversion, Unconventional Interventions and Terrorism at the University of Nottingham. Rory, welcome back. It's great to have you again on the programme. Please give me a working definition of covert action. Hi there. Thanks for thanks for having me back on. So, covert action is when states try to influence to shape the affairs of of other of other nations, but crucially, in a way where their hand remains hidden. So it's about plausible deniability. It's about getting out there using spies using you know, the listed menu of options you outlined in your intro, the electoral interference, the sabotage, the cyber attacks, all the way up to the most controversial of all of assassination, uh, in order to, to shape, to, to, to cause change. And this has been going on for literally millennia. You know, there's examples hundreds of years, thousands of years ago. 
Rory, I was uh, fascinated, indeed agog, to learn from the book that despite its global reputation for meddling, the US, of all places, is the most transparent nation in its use of covert action. It's actually produced a written definition of it. It's produced a written definition. It's declassified all sorts of documents. The beauty of studying this um, and I wrote the book during lockdown from my bedroom, essentially, is you can sit there and you can look at all the CIA declassified files. They're online. You can do it from the comfort of your own bedroom. You don't even have to leave the house. Now, that is a remarkable difference from, say, the UK, where I'm based, where you know you have to nothing's written down to start with, and the stuff that is written down, you have to traipse down to uh, the National Archives. And even then, um, there's nothing on MI6 released post-1949. So the US has a reputation for doing a lot of this stuff, but it also has a reputation for being um, much more transparent than, than most other countries. You talk a bit about the legality of covert action. It surprised me to learn that the CIA, which has a well-earned reputation for going rogue and meddling across the world, is probably the most legally constrained of all the world's covert agencies. Could this be true? The funny thing is, it's not always about going rogue, because so often this stuff is is traced back to the president, who authorises it, particularly in more recent decades, there is something called a presidential finding, which basically means the president finds that this particular operation is in the interest of national security and could go ahead. So this is... Uh, within American legal frameworks. Now, that's quite different from kind of international frameworks around um, not encroaching on other states' sovereignty, for example, not meddling uh, in, in the internal affairs of other states. But from a US perspective, you know, there are legal frameworks, and most of this uh, takes place within legal frameworks, even stuff that, you know, on the face of it sounds particularly dramatic, so often it's traced back up to the um, elected president himself. You make the point that the UK is far more secretive and that we're not too good at it in Australia. So I hear. Um, apparently, you guys make us look, uh, <laughs> look like WikiLeaks in comparison. Um, it's, it's very difficult bleeding uh, secret material out of, out of the British state, but uh, my friends and colleagues in uh, in Canberra, tell me that um, it's, it's, just, it's, it's even more difficult. And the French as well. Apparently the French are particularly, uh, particularly tight-lipped. Rory, back in the uh, 70s, we saw a really big US congressional inquiry into uh, the CIA action. The Church Committee comes to mind. And many Americans were horrified to learn about what their government was doing in their name. Is there something inherently immoral or at least hypocritical about democracies behaving in this way? I would argue that it depends on the on the context. This might be slightly controversial. I don't I don't think there's anything inherently uh, good or bad about this type of activity. It's a, it's a means of policy execution, to put it in a boring academic way. Um, the key is is how it's used and, and for what purposes. And you're right. There are many people in the in the states who were. Uh, shocked and appalled when they found out about uh, a lot of this stuff and some of it you know, was used wrongly inappropriately and um and certainly wouldn't get sanctions today um but other people would argue well you know what's the alternative it's better than going to war for example if the choice is between uh you know more subtle uh, supplying weapons for example to particular rebels or something it's better than a full-on world war three LNL on Radio National, the voice of Rory Cormack. Rory's day job is Professor of International Relations and is now the author of How to Stage a Coup and 10 Other Lessons from the World of Secret Statecraft. Now, let's go back to assassinations, which you mentioned earlier. One of the big myths you wanted to spell is that Western democracies, at least, there are no James Bonds or Jason Bonds. No one, you say, has a license to kill. 
that that is totally true. We read the newspapers every day, and it's always discussed through the prism of Bond and Born and people going around doing crazy stuff with their hidden guns and crazy gadgetry. The reality is that uh, whenever yeah. an American um, intelligence officer uh, or special forces wants to use lethal force, it has to be authorised. Um, so in, the, in the UK, uh, MI6 don't go around killing people, full stop. Um, but uh, whatever you know, they, 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 they do do, whatever operations they're up to, it gets run through policymakers, it gets run through lawyers. Now, that's not quite as glamorous as the freewheeling, handsome uh, spy going around drinking martinis and acting outrageously. But it's the mundane reality. It goes through layers and layers of lawyers to make sure that um, that this is being done in a, in a constrained manner. And that's what differentiates the world of US and UK secret statecraft from, say, um, Russian secret statecraft. It's, it's much more. It's much more constrained. Um, it's much more proportionate. Do assassination attempts tend to end in failure? Have some been deemed successful? Using it as a tool to try to change a regime, um, I think, has been an abject failure. It's incredibly difficult, even in the freewheeling days of the early Cold War when CIA were doing some crazy stuff and some of the um, stories about how they tried to kill Fidel Castro of Cuba, for example, are hair-raising, you know, stories of smoke, uh, poison cigars, exploding cigars, poison wetsuits, exploding underwater shells. He liked, he liked scuba diving, did, uh, did Castro. But every one of them completely failed. And even if an assassination does manage to take out a leader, which is a big if, there is then absolutely no guarantee that the the successor regime would be any better, be any better aligned to the to the initial states, the sponsoring states' interests. Um, so, in in terms of regime change, taking aside the the moral arguments, but just practically, I mean, it, it's horrendous. And is um, if I can think of one potentially one example in the entire 20th century, which would be the Soviets taking out the Afghan leader before the 1980s war. But it's it's, it's got a, a horrendous history of um, of utter an abject failure, if we're honest. Rory, in the Antipodes, we've recently become aware of uh, that we're now a target for, well, subtler forms of influence and outright assassination. China has had its Confucius centres here, which were ostensibly language-teaching centres, but they... They have been kicked out of a lot of universities and countries for their influence activities, and there are uh, a few Australian pollies and even academics who've been accused of uh, promoting Chinese narratives. How does all this work? Are people formally recruited and played and paid? Are they bribed, or is it a subtle art of finding and promoting fellow travellers? It's subtle. And we're just starting to talk about this threat um, up here in the UK now. And it sounds like you guys are, are much further along in, in kind of discussion and awareness of it. But there's a whole spectrum of, of influence ranging from, you know, the paid agent of the state who is directly receiving money in order to, sh- to shape political debates, to fund certain parties, to constrain academic debates. That's one end of the spectrum. And it goes all the way through towards to to just you know yeah um just encouraging fellow travelers to just very subtly trying to manipulate and shape and that's the real threat here there's no great risk of you know, full-on dramatic coup or anything in australia or in the uk but it's that subtle pervasive drip 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 of steady subversion which i think is really worrying well it's not new i well remember when the cia were funding encounter in the uk and the magazine quadrant in australia it's old stuff isn't it it's very old stuff and i think one of the dangers here is 
we talk about this, particularly because of the cyber dimension as being entirely new, and we completely forget about all of the, the lessons that have gone before us about, you know, how we responded to it in the past. Um, the actual principles of all of this, the means might be new in terms of you know, cyber, social media, etc. Um, but the actual principles about disrupting, about discrediting, about trying to work out where there's a division in society, and then smashing that division open, basically, where is the schism? Let's exploit it. Let's polarise Let's polarise different people's um, opinions and just confuse and make life difficult. I mean, that's, that's, that's as old as time. Rory, if the goal is shaping opinions rather than shooting a leader, it, that's pretty hard to measure, isn't it? It's, I guess it's a bit like an advertising campaign where you can look at increased sales. It's incredibly hard to measure. And this is something that um, policymakers are grappling with at the moment about how we even go about measuring it. Because um, there's one thing, you know, measuring the, the outputs of this, measuring the, the equivalent of increased sales, for example, how many clicks has something generated. But that only tells us half the story. It doesn't tell us how behavior or opinions have changed. It doesn't tell us what role the hidden hand had in any potential change. Because so often, when a state tries to manipulate or subvert another state, they don't do it from scratch. They exploit pre-existing tensions and loopholes and debates and narratives which are which already existing inside the, the target state over very, various controversial issues, and they smash them open. So well, it's very we difficult saw, we to saw that, the agency. We saw that happening internally with Brexit, of course, didn't we? Yeah, and Brexit is just the latest line in a, in a whole, whole load of things, um, whether it's uh, immigration, whether it's Brexit, whether it is in you know, the US, um, Trump and critical race theory, and anything which is... Um, polarizing a hostile state will try to exploit it and to stir up those divisions and stir up that confusion so we need to be able to kind of recognize the interplay between our own internal problems not just blame everything on hostile foreign states but get our own house in order to uh, to prevent it in the first place rory why this book now because there's been so much talk of all of this over the last few years, going back probably to about 2014 and, and Russia's annexation of Crimea with the so-called little green men popping up. And then we had Trump in 2016 and we've had um, you know, various uh, assassination attempts. We've had a whole host of electoral interferences. We've had cyber attacks, cyber sabotage. It seems like it's everywhere. And I wanted to write this book to to help us understand what on earth is going on. Is, is it new? Is it not new? Uh, what do we do about it? What is this phenomenon? Because it's so easily mythologized through that prism of James Bond. And I think it's really important that we try and understand. And, and the book's an explainer. You know, what's going on? Why do states do it? Does it work? With a, with a bunch of um, hopefully interesting stories along the way. This might be a naive question, but doesn't technology make it harder to do covert, it must be almost impossible, for example, to fake a passport these days with fingerprint IDs, biometric data. There are cameras on every street corner. True or false? It's certainly true. It's become more difficult, but there are, as you can imagine, all sorts of very clever people coming up with all sorts of uh, workarounds. There was rumours that when the, for example, when the Russians came into the UK to try and assassinate the dissident Sergei Skripal back in 2018. You know, Britain has very strong biometric security at the, at the airports, but uh, allegedly Russia managed to disable it for that, for that split second that they, that they came through. So there are, there, are, there are ways and there are people working on uh, exploiting those and indeed um, preventing those. Well, you're telling us how to stage a coup. How do we defend ourselves against covert action? Some last-minute advice, please. We get our own house in order. We make sure there are no easily exploitable loopholes around electoral interference. We make sure that we're not having toxic debates about Brexit or about immigration. We're not at each other's throats. These hostile states seek to exploit our vulnerabilities, they seek to exploit our kind of openness and they look for schisms and they try and smack those schisms open. So we need to 
um, close those close those loopholes, talk in a much more civil manner, um, and that will help build resilience against uh, foreign subversion. Rory, come back soon. I've been talking to Rory Cormack about How to Stage a Coup, published by Atlantic Books. LNL on Radio National. one of the most colorful and interesting backgrounds of any filmmaker of his time. He ran away to sea. He claimed to have fought in various revolutions. He eventually wound up in Los Angeles in the late 1920s and started writing for silent movies and then, of course, graduated to directing. My grandfather, John Farrow, was Australian. It sounds like the kind of biography that was sort of concocted by studio publicity machines, but I guess it has a kind of a a print-the-legend quality. A womanizer, philandra, prolific writer and filmmaker who made it to the top in uh, The Dream Factory. We're talking about the director John Farrow. Made 50 movies directed the likes of uh, Robert Mitchum, one of my all-time favourites, Arva Gardner, John Wayne and Betty Davis. But these days, the scoundrel from Marrick film seems to have faded from history, something my next guests are keen to correct. Joining me in our Sydney studio are directors and producers Claude Gonzalez and Franz Vandenberg, who've made a film about him. It's called John Farrow, Hollywood's Man in the Shadows, and it's going on screen at the Canberra Film Festival this weekend alongside a a major retrospective of his work. Gentlemen, welcome to the Little Wireless program. Uh, Franz, I'm starting with you. How did you get interested in Farrow? We'd... um Claude and I had met in 2004. I was editing a film for him. We discovered that we both liked films from the classic Hollywood period, um, particularly the studio system and particularly film noir. We'd seen a film called The Big Clock. Both of us liked the film but had no idea that the director was Australian. And this whetted our our appetites because he was a man who seemed to be... No one knew anything about and we'd never heard from about him before, considering we both were interested in this type of film. And it was like, how the hell did this guy get there? And so we just sort of fell in love with the story and pursued him. I should point out that the both of you are extremely well credentialed and your collective credits verge on the awesome. Now, he had a, an extraordinary life, which you map out in the film, and I'd like you to take us through. Tell us about his early life in Marrickville, a storyteller from a young age, was he not? Yes, he was incredible, uh, a bit of a scoundrel as a kid because he came up through Marrickville but always was recreating something about himself, a, a fabulous from a young age. He was someone who would become become more and more entranced with telling stories to the point when the flu epidemic hit Sydney in 1919. Young Farrow was caught playing a doctor uh, with stethoscope and everything and guiding patients to health. And this is a bit of a scandal in the family and in, in New South Wales. And it was uh, asked of him to maybe remove himself from these shores. And he left Australia at a young age, 15 or so, and travel the seven seas. I mean, he's an incredible, uh, dynamic, almost adventurous heart. Well, he claims he sailed all over the Pacific and fought in revolts in Nicaragua and Mexico. Any truth in that? Um, He certainly uh, was a storyteller. We haven't been able to find out about the revolutions, but he did certainly uh, spend a couple of years sailing the South Seas as a merchant marine, um, merchant seaman. He lived in Tahiti for about two years where he did develop the skills to become a writer. I mean, as Claude said, he did leave here at 15 and a half. 
I hadn't realised that he also, uh, well, was close to one of my all-time heroes, probably the founding father of the documentary in uh, Robert J. Flaherty. That's right. He did spend some time with him. They ran across each other in one of their um, voyages in the South Seas. He worked with him. And again, he just seemed to assume all these different roles and uh, did them really well. What did he tell people about his background? I imagine he was lumbered with an Australian accent. I think at the time he was... He hid it slightly. People thought he was English. He, later on in Hollywood, people thought he was English and part of the emigre set there. But also it wasn't a time where people announced that they were from Australia. We, we, we sort of find that he also told people he was related to the kings and queens of England. So he loved to tell and create a lure about himself. He, he changed his name from Jack Farrow, he was born Jack Farrow, to John Farrow, John Villiers Farrow, always giving himself airs and a position in life to move forward. He was, again, a very dynamic, charismatic personality and, and in a way that a storyteller made good in Hollywood because that's the place of great stories. Now, having jumped ship in San Francisco, he's later arrested for being an illegal alien and making a false statement claiming to be Romanian. Yes, well, the Romanian thing was hap- happened to him when he was down in Los Angeles. He did uh, jump ship in San Francisco. He was about 18. He stayed there not long. Um, he managed to cause quite a bit of a stir there with the local ladies. He also de- um, is reported to have gone along to see Hamlet one evening. And um, unfortunately for the audience, the manager came out and said the leading actor is ill um, what should we do? And John apparently jumped up and said, I, I know that play very well. And they said, should we give him a go? And he went back and had a go. And he came out and he apparently did the play from memory. And in the audience that evening, again, good luck played into his role, his life. Um, John Huston was in the audience and My was God. completely transfixed <laughs> by this weird Australian doing Hamlet. They became firm <laughs> friends and he suggested you've got to go down to Hollywood because they need writers. By that stage, John had written. And so in the mid-20s, he arrived in um, Hollywood to write and had his first credit by 1927. Now, I'm much older than either of you blokes, but I never missed a Saturday matinee at Oits. Live for them. And best of all would be a Tarzan movie. And for me, there was only one real Tarzan. And that was the chest-thumping Johnny Weismaller. Imagine my astonishment when I learned from you blokes that he married Jane. He married Maureen O'Sullivan. That's right. They met and fell in love on the set of one of the Tarzan films. Jane, or Maureen, was uh, first started in 1932 in that great uh, Tarzan film. But they met because Farrow was employed to do a new Tarzan film called Tarzan Escapes. And there he met her and wooed her and they became a couple. She was a Catholic Irish girl and when they married in 1936 he converted to Catholicism. And so it was a, a magical romance, a Hollywood romance with one of Hollywood's leading ladies. They then uh, had children, seven children, one of them most famously, Mia Farrow, and they lived the life of Hollywood royalty in a way. But he took his Catholicism very seriously, not only in having lots and lots of children, but having a rather large crucifix about the place. Yes, it, um, it's been reported by all his children that um, they were forced to do um, the mass every almost every day. They had a 12-foot crucifix in, the, in their living room. And John just really, like a lot of converts, he really took it seriously and um, went for it much more than he needed to. A 12-foot crucifix. Mm. Was he into flagellation at all? Well, possibly, <laughs> Philip. There's no... Um, No reports of that, but there are so many other stories. There's so many amazing things. He plays Hamlet at the drop of a hat. He writes a history of the papacy. He he wrote the... uh, Also, not only did he write a history of the papacy, but he wrote that while he was on active service in the North Atlantic, uh, uh, sailing for the Canadian 
um, Navy because he was still an illegal alien at that stage, but he could join the Canadian Navy, which he did. He loved the sea. And his shipmates used to joke with him each night when there was a watch, change of watch, they'd say, which Pope have you killed off tonight, John? And he'd <laughs> tell them and, you know. Well, if he never made a film, his contribution to literature is consequential. He writes eight books, two novels, a play, poetry, three biographies. And is, it, is this true that he received the order of St John of Jerusalem? That's correct, and he is recognised by the Pope for all his great works. He's one of the most highly decorated Catholic scholars, and he was able to actually then parlay that into being recognised in Hollywood as a sort of tough director, but also one that was very uh, pious, strangely enough, in a town like that. And later on in life, he tried many times to make Catholic subject films, but he's a real... Touch of the Mel Gibsons. That's right, but he, he was more successful in, in the thriller aspects of... What, what was the quality of his writing like? And I'm talking, not talking film writing. What were the novels like? What was, what was the poetry like? The poetry is very good, what we've seen of it, and other, I mean, his, um, it's been recognised by other writers, particularly poets, that he was of a high standard, um, as was his novels and his biographies. Now, it has to be said that his devotion to Catholicism uh, didn't stop his womanising. If anything, it seems to have ex- exacerbated it. He was a very uh, prolific Philandra. I mean, that's the thing about Farrah. He seems to have had many, many admirers and, and attracted a lot of, was in a lot of relationships. But also he was carrying on and had a separate family outside of his own family. He had a, a, a son also named John Charles Farrow uh, with a relationship he had with a, an actress called Lily Lenorak. And so he was able to keep these things secret. He had a very secret side. Well, I've learned from you guys that two of his children born on the same day to different mothers. I mean, that's Ripley's Believe It or Not. Yeah, we discovered that when we uh, interviewed um, John Charles Farrow, his son with Maureen O'Sullivan, and we'd heard that he'd heard that there was another son, and much later on it was confirmed. We met um, the the widow of that John Charles Farrow, who f- uh, really Philip was actually born the same in this on the same day in Los Angeles at different hospitals, and both were called John Charles. <laughs> Okay, let's talk about the films. Uh, I've mentioned a couple of the famous actors he directed, but you also uh, mentioned his move into film noir, of which the best known is The Big Clock. The Big Clock certainly is um, a masterpiece of his and also for noir. He was working at this stage for Paramount and he was pretty much um, the sort of one of the lead directors on the lot. He'd worked there since 1943. His first film there was Wake Island, which um, did him very well. He um, didn't... He was nominated for an Academy Award. He didn't win that. But actually, Philip, while he was there waiting to receive that award, he picked up um, on behalf of Australia the um, Academy Award that was awarded to Damien Parra for Kokoda Frontline, which was an unusual event. Anyway, he went on... And by the stage of 1948, he was really hitting his top gear with The Big Clock. Sad to say, I've never seen The Big Clock. I know that it starred Milan, Charles Lawton and the aforementioned Maureen O'Sullivan. But the plot sounds great. A media magnate who murders his lover and tries to pin it on one of his employees. You could sell the rights to Rupert Murdoch. It's a fantastic film. And it's also interesting that it's very modern noir. Like his other films, it had great sense of humour, great performances and a wonderfully dynamic sense of of the darker side of noir where where things would take over a man and make him live this nightmare, a nightmare crime that he had to solve. Coming back to the fact that he was such a successful womanizer, I have to ask you about his physicality. Are we talking about a marvellous looking fellow? Was he drop dead gorgeous? He was um, about six foot one. His, um, described as being very physically fit, which is, again, he's a man of 
of um, opposites because uh, as a young man, he loved, uh, was mentioned he loves, he loved, really loved swimming. And you mentioned Johnny Weissmuller. They became friends through his um, relationship with Maureen. Um, and also in that time, the early 30s, he was he became friends with Michael Pates. I mean, also, you yes. know, Philip. And um, they, they used to spend time, Weissmuller and Farrah would swim off the coast of Malibu where John and Maureen had a, a holiday weekend house. They would swim, think nothing of swimming, miles up the coast of the and um, what, leaving Michael Pate on the shore while he um, nursed the brandy bottle. And so after a couple of hours, both Weissmuller and Farrow swam back in and they had their brandy and with no... <laughs> With no um, doubt of Farrah's uh, prowess. You're reminding me of so many people whose uh, performances of life I have thoroughly enjoyed. Michael Pate I knew a little, never met Johnny Wiesmiller or indeed Cheetah, but uh, boy, he was a busy boy. How many of his films survive? How many of them are still seeable? All of them are available in one way or another on DVD or on film, and we're lucky this weekend we'll be able to see three of them, three great films, one on 35mm print, so it's going to be a beautiful print of... What are, what are they? So it's The Big Clock, then followed by Alias Nick Beale and Where Danger Lives. All of them film noirs, all of them fantastic examples of, of his talents as a storyteller, as a craftsman. Was he, was he well rev- reviewed? revered at the time? At the time, yes. The big clock did really well. That's why he was in such a powerful position at Paramount. Um, Based upon that, he was offered the chance to direct The Great Gatsby. Was he now? He was because he'd worked at that stage with Alan Ladd. Alan Ladd was huge at Paramount. We should remind the the listener that there have been a great many interpretations of of Gatsby. The least acceptable being Baz Luhrmann's, but that's a personal personal view. But Alan Ladd would have been a good Gatsby. Yes, and he was. Um, but interestingly, Farrah chose not to do the film and he chose instead to do this film that we're showing on the weekend, Alias Nick Beale, which if anything, um, if you like Noir Philip and you haven't seen it, it's wonderful. It's a Faustian tale. It fits right into Farrah's own sense of good versus bad. Ray Milan turns up again playing the suavest devil you've literally ever seen. It's full of brimstone and yeah. noir and, uh, and also um, Audrey Totter, who's just like a noir goddess. So He obviously had a high regard for Ray Milan. He pops up in a couple of them. Yes, I mean, Ray... Ray did some of his best work for Farrah. They got on very well. Ray Milan apparently was one of these people who could remember pages and pages and pages and pages of dialogue which suited John Farrah very well because he loved to try and uh, shoot these very long scenes, which he succeeded in doing. I should remind the listener that I'm talking to uh, to director-producer Claude Gonzalez and to director-producer Franz Vandenberg. So how did you go about finding all the background on, on John or Jack? Because he rarely gave interviews as such. Yeah, he's, I mean, he was very difficult to find any information about. When we started, there were no archive, no interviews with him at all. It was part of the mystery of finding anything about him because even though we liked his films, we had to search out where we could find people that he'd worked with. We wrote to family members. We began to look far and wide. And it was very difficult because, he, as we sort of describe in the film, it's almost like he'd fallen through the cracks of film history. And part of our search, and maybe we should have called it a mystery, was to really show people what made him so fascinating, not only, as we've been saying, a great storyteller and a philanderer, but also a great filmmaker and and someone that had been forgotten by Hollywood. It's amazing how many significant Australian people working in film have fallen through the cracks. My favourite film is The Third Man, photographed by an Australian cinematographer, a masterpiece. No one in Australia seems to know that. Mm. And no one, until you blokes came along, knows a damn thing about Farrah. Well, it's like, um, again, when we started, Philip, we, uh, we were having trouble finding anybody who knew him, particularly here. Some people did uh, know him in America, 
Um, you'll see in, the, in our documentary that we did interview a number of Australian uh, directors. Um, for example, Philip Noyce went to the National, you know, the Australian yeah. Film and Television School that you had a lot to do with. Farrow was never taught to them as uh, part of the curriculum. It should have been. Um, same with, I spoke with Gillian Armstrong. She had no idea about him. Bruce Beresford. Beresford did because, yeah. you know, Bruce is a, a film lover. As, did, as was Ken Cameron and also Philippe Mora. So we had a mixture of people who were not only filmmakers but aficionados. Mia Farrow didn't want to be involved? Well, she, she had her own issues because we did ask and we did venture out and send many letters, but, I mean, that family's had a lot of difficulty and I think she shied away from taking part. We were very lucky to get his son, John Charles Farrow, and also interview all the cousins here in Australia. So we we, we did quite well in, in creating his story through those voices, but unfortunately, me and no. But we are talking about someone who's into the art of obfuscation as much as filmmaking. You know, he told so many different stories to... Uh, to different partners or to different uh, associates. His children um, all all have different versions of him as well. Um, they tended to, obviously there were seven of them, they all lived in a classic, again like a Hollywood movie, they lived in Beverly Hills and they had nannies and they had all this sort of thing, but the parents tended to be, you know, they tended to keep be at an arm's length. Maureen was, um, was very proud of the fact that she never made a dinner in her life. Um, she was far more off being beautiful and exotic and distant, and John was always working. I should point out in parenthesis that his grandson, the son of Mia Farrow, was Ronan Farrow, and he, of course, is the bloke who exposed the odious Harvey Weinstein. What becomes of Farrow? How does his life end? Well, basically, he works himself throughout the 40s and 50s to the point where he's recognised as a great director. But then with the turn of the 60s, with the introduction of the blockbuster, he tries to get into that and it doesn't quite work for him. He uh, begins a film called Around the World in 80 Days and he has a falling out with its producer, Michael Todd. Then he tries to and gets a great uh, who film. Who later married Elizabeth Taylor. That's right. <laughs> ah, trivial pursuits, not. And then he uh, makes John Paul Paul Jones, and that is a medium film it, uh, in the sense that it, it, it's a blockbuster, but it doesn't do very well. And then, tragically, his son, his eldest son, dies in an aeroplane accident above the skies of Los Angeles, and that really breaks him. He has a stroke soon after that. It really hurts the family. They return from their European adventure making this film, and, and slowly his life starts to sort of break apart because Maureen decides to go back on the stage. OK, we've got to wind it up. The doco is already screened here in Sydney, in Canberra this weekend. Will we be able to see it elsewhere in Australia? Uh, yes, we're looking to maybe release it later on in the year, but uh, it's available on some streaming services at the moment. Thanks, chaps, co-directors and producers of John Farrow, Hollywood's Man in the Shadows, Claude Gonzalez and Franz Vandenberg. On our next, we'll delve into the world of crime, noir stories behind uh, the world's biggest financial fraud and the crypto queen behind it, and we'll look at the hidden and dangerous world of shipping, another case of fraud and murder that shows how uncountable, unaccountable that industry is. See you then.
You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.